0: Today I'm talking to you guys about this movie Prometheus. Prometheus. How many people out there saw Prometheus? Anyone hands up? No? Oh, man. Well, I'm going to have to teach you guys about it then. And my mic is apparently hotter than it normally is because I sound like I'm just booming right now, huh? I'm going to yell a lot too, so it could be dangerous. No, I'm just joking. I'm not going to yell a lot. Well, let me unpack this for you. Prometheus is uh, named after a Greek god. Actually, he was a titan. And if you know a little bit about the mythology, the titans actually came before the Olympians, people like Zeus and all those ones that we know so common. Prometheus was one of the original titans who the Olympians um, kicked off of the uh, mountain of the gods, as it's known in the old mythology. And Prometheus was specifically known because he was kind of like... Someone who really believed in the human race, and he actually stole fire from Zeus and delivered it to the humans in order to help them become like everything they're supposed to be. He really was like this, a change agent for humanity. It said he was the one who really brought, um, like I guess, like our technology to us and stuff. And actually, he got punished for it in the in the mythology. He brings fire to man, and because of it, Zeus, Zeus punishes him since he's. Um, Immortal, he chains him to a rock, and every day an eagle comes and eats his liver, and it regenerates every night. And the next day, the eagle comes and eats his liver again. So, quite a harsh punishment. But from this Prometheus actually got um, in Western civilization, known as kind of like a symbol for our human striving, like our wanting to do better, our wanting to um, advance, and sometimes even kind of reaching farther than we should and having a negative reaction, almost like what Prometheus uh, had happened to him where he was punished for this. So it's kind of um, fitting for this movie because the spaceship in the movie is named Prometheus. So, of course, humans kind of reaching to the very outer grasp they could to try to, um, to learn about who we are. For those who didn't know, the movie is directed by Ridley Scott, a pretty famous director. Um, it's actually in relation to the old Alien series. Um, There's four movies made in the Alien, I think four movies, back in the 80s. So any of you guys who are uh, maybe older than some of our young whippersnappers, and you remember the original Alien series, you go ahead and throw up your hands. That was from a long time ago, right? 1980, um, way, way back when I was still not even the thought. I was not even born yet. But this is actually a prequel to these movies, meaning it comes before in order to set the framework for those future movies. So that's where we, we come at it. It did pretty decent in the movies. made $390 million. I wish something that I created made $390 million, um, but it might be a while. The movie is set in 2093, and Elizabeth Shaw and her partner Charlie, Charlie Holloway are researchers who are discovering these pictograms around the Earth. And they find that amongst all these different civilizations who never had contact, who never had any way of sharing information, they all had these paintings of this one pattern of stars. And as they searched they found this pattern of stars way, way out um, at the end of our galaxy, and it was kind of like impossible to reach, obviously, up into this point until technology had caught, caught up to where we could actually do space travel, I guess. So they find these, and it's Shaw's belief that this is an invitation left by kind of like the creators of earth. She believes that maybe this is where life actually originated from. And they brought our, our human life here, and this is... is put as a sign to try to lead us back to our our beginning. Shaw is kind of interesting. She actually wears a cross. She actually has faith. In it. And throughout the movie, her faith is kind of um, joked at, but she's very uh, steadfast in her faith. But she believes there must be something tying back to this. So in her faith, she kind of invests all this time and energy to thinking, could we find some sort of beginning here? She finds this guy who's extremely rich named Peter Whalen to fund this project. And they take this trip uh, where they're in, hypersleep, and they travel years and years to go and reach LV-223, which is basically this planet amongst these stars. And they go there in hopes that perhaps they would find a, a beginning, some sort of clue as to where we came from as humans, some sort of um, beginning information on this planet. Well, this obviously is, is an old theme, and to take from this movie, this is an old theme that's been in... in um, in humans for forever. We've always wondered that, why are we here? Where did we come from? How did this all begin? How did this all start? And a lot of that was based around um, religion for the most part at the beginning of of, of time. But as time kind of went on, people even started to use science and try to think maybe there's something outside of God. Um, And in the 18th century, actually, A shift happened. And what happened is it went to what they call scientific naturalism. And in the 18th century, people began to say, through science, we can find a means of which the earth and us were all created that has nothing to do with God. And that began to become a reality. Um, The most common one that we most, all of us would know, would be Darwin's theory of evolution. He created that at the same time. He outlined it in his book, On the Origin of Species. And it was a dominant belief for a very long time, um, a very dominant belief. The idea that the origin of species came from evolution and all these different things. But what's interesting is now, at the place we are today, there's actually a lot of very wise scientists who are beginning to pull away from Darwin's theory of evolution, which I find very interesting. Although it's been around for a long time and a lot of people have believed this concept, this theory, a lot of very, very wise men are beginning to pull away and say that they don't really think this makes as much sense as it did at the time. That new science is actually proving things that don't seem to fit into Darwin's theory. Anthony Flew, he's a British philosopher, and he was a strong advocate of atheism his whole life. His main argument was always this, that we must presuppose atheism as human beings until evidence proves otherwise that we can't presuppose the fact that there's a God. We have to start with the fact there must be no God, and then from there, if the evidence led us to believe there was one, that would be okay. In 2004, he wrote a book interestingly called There Is a God, How the Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And he admitted that getting up to the age of 70s and 80s, after years and years and years of study as he was finishing out his career, he said the evidence just seemed to be stacked in a way that I believe maybe there is a Creator. Francis Collins, he's the head of the Human Genome Project, and he said this in an interview, I can't imagine how nature, in this case, the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be something outside of nature. Interestingly enough, we're doing this whole series, right, about at the movies and saying we're finding truths that perhaps aren't even in the movie, that the director's never intended, but during an interview about this movie, the director, Ridley Scott, even said this, it seems a mathematical impossibility for life to have gotten where it is today without some sort of help. Who pushed it along? So even the director of this movie, when he was asked about it, he even said, you know, it just seems impossible that all this could be an accident. It seems like someone was there who gave it a nudge. And obviously Ridley isn't a a Christian man, but he's a questioning man saying maybe there's someone who created this. Maybe there's something um, to the beginning, the idea that the universe had a start. When Sean and this team travel, do all this work, and they finally get to LV. Two, two, three. They travel around and they find a straight line, and it's interesting because as soon as they see it, they said, "Okay, something's here." Because nature doesn't build in straight lines; only man does. Only intelligence builds in straight lines. And they follow it, and sure enough, it leads to this this creation, which looks like a cave, but it's actually this cavern. And as they go in and they research, they begin to find this huge, um, basically this huge uh, totem of a human head, and they begin to find these canisters, and there's signs, there's intelligent life, and finally, they actually find the remains of a corpse there, and they take it and test on it, and sure enough, as they test this DNA that's left in the bones of this this deceased being, it has the same DNA as us, that although it looks different, it has our DNA, And they are just astounded. I mean, this changes everything. They found that there's someone who is here that had visited earth centuries before, and they believe these are engineers. And that's what they begin to call them, is the engineers. They believe these are the people who must have started our life on earth. They're the creators that came and brought life to our planet. This obviously has very close ties as we look at, at the Bible, Um, What I want to share with you this morning is just a few basic sentiments, Um, but first and foremost, what Shaw and these people learn, very, very skeptical and very um, mathematical in their approach to it, they're met with this astounding discovery, and it's this. They had a creator, and it changes everything in their mindset when they realize, wait a second, this isn't all an accident. Someone started this. And I want to share the same from the Bible this morning, and, and it's this, the very, very first story in the Bible is an account of a creator. It's in Genesis, and the whole point of Genesis is the beginning. And it starts, and in the beginning of it, it says that in seven days, God creates this entire universe that we live in. It breaks it down like this, that on day one, he created light and darkness, On day two, he created the sky and the waters and separated them. On day three, dry land and water separated and plants and trees were made. On day four, the sun, moon, and stars were created. On day five, fish and birds were created. And on day six, animals and man were created. On day seven, he took a break and he watched football. (laughs) Someone claps. Very good. Now, many people today... They foolishly believe that the Bible and science are enemies that are fighting each other. And there's a lot of people who are very scientific who reject the Bible completely and say it's a bunch of lies. And there's people who maybe are in your shoes who begin to believe and you think that science has nothing good to tell us because it's all about faith. But really that's, that's not the case. It's quite the contrary. I believe that God's word, faith, and science are actually two sides of the same coin. That although some would wield science to try to to level faith, that if you take science and pair it with faith, you see things that would bolster your faith even more. One of the strongest arguments that you can find is actually our creation of whether or not God exists. Francis Collins, again, the man who's in charge of the Genome Project, he said this, When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming there are about 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear forces, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it now. Matter would not have been able to coalesce there would have been no galaxy, no stars, no planets, or people. So he says, from a scientific perspective, when I look at it, is it almost seems as if someone who was far more wise than we could comprehend put this together. He says, I mean, the chance, when you're talking of, uh, of a part of it, one of these forces, one of these constants, being a millionth of a millionth off, that the entire thing would crumble and collapse. So it almost seems impossible That someone who was much more wise didn't lay this out and put it together. And people will argue and people will debate. They'll read the Bible account of creation and say, well, that's unbelievable. But there's a problem. Because we try to read Genesis, we try to read the beginning of this book as though it were a a science book about the creation of earth, but it's not, it's a documentary about the Creator. And see, Genesis is far more interested in the why than in the how. People get confused, and they say, it's not that clear, and that's because it wasn't about the how the earth became. Genesis was about the why the God, the creator, created. And when we read it, we can get confused with that. I want to share with you this. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is it up here? Okay, keep it there. How many of you guys remember old school grammar? Did anyone like grammar in school? Nerds. <laughs> I hated grammar. Oh, I hated grammar. But here's a sentence, right? And if you remember all the way back to grammar school, they made you do this a million times when you first started, and it was called finding the subject in a sentence. Do you remember it? Circle the subject. Circle the subject. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the subject of this sentence? God. In the beginning, God he is the subject, and see, the problem is, is people will read this book thinking that the subject is the earth and the creation, but the book, the story, is about God. It's about the creator, and that's why sometimes when they read it, they think it doesn't make sense. It's because it's not a science book. It's a documentary of the creator. It's about God, and the rest of the entire book is about God. God. Now, people would say that stinks because I think if it was about the world, it'd be easier for us to understand, but think about it, okay? If I wanted to understand something, I wanted to understand how something works, I could study it and study it and study it, and maybe from studying it, I could draw conclusions about the person who engineered and created it. But if I just talked directly to the engineer and the creator, it'd be far more easy for me to understand his creation, wouldn't it? If I could get into the mind of the engineer... I could understand what he had created. And how much easier for me to get to know the, the creator than to just simply engage with him and learn about him, than to try to learn about him through his creation. That's why it's written that way. What I want to share this morning is this. You have a creator. And that's good news. That's good news. So many people will say, oh, it is all uh, so much. No, it's good news. Because the reality is this, if you talk to people who really hard-nosed believe that the world just evolved by chance, if everything is simply by chance and nothing is created but everything is just a, a disruption of this and a change of this, then guess what? Your life means nothing. If this is all an accident, your life means nothing. Whether you die today, live 100 years, have 10 kids, have none, Whether or not you change anything, it means nothing because it's all an accident anywhere. It's all going to burn at the end, and nothing's going to make a difference. And people who really, really believe hard nosed in evolution believe that that's the truth. Richard Dawkins is quoted many times saying that the the true belief of evolution is that it's futile, that all of this is simply futile. It doesn't matter what we engage, what we learn, what we, we experience, it doesn't matter. Because it's all just an accident. I'm here to tell you that it is not an accident. That we have a divine creator who created the earth, who knowingly made the systems, who laid out the environments, who created who you are, who laid out how you interact with the world. And that what you do in life is not simply useless and done when you die, but the things that we do on earth have everlasting impacts. We have a creator, and that is such good news because it means that your life is actually worth something. Your life is useful. Your life is important. Your life is meaningful. A creator chose to make you. When Sean, the team of the Prometheus, reach LV223, they find the engineers, but they're also struck with this really, really terrible realization. As they begin to search through this compound, they find this terrible substance that the engineers created. And it's this evil compound, this black goo that mutates and infects its hosts and before long actually becomes a separate being of itself that is just destructive and evil to its purest forms. And in searching through the logs and in searching through the... the, study of uh, the, the ship itself, they realized that the engineers had created this plague and were planning on taking it back to earth. And they're faced with more questions they ever had. They come and they think finally questions are going to get answered, that we find our creators, our engineers, and they're, fet- they're, they're met and faced with the idea that their creator was coming to destroy us. The people who created us had decided to come and destroy life on earth. And now, obviously, a whole other set of circumstances come about. Why would they decide to destroy us? Well, this reminds me of a Bible story. Very common one that most of you guys have probably heard. Some of you might not have. And it's actually only found five chapters. Five chapters after this creation story. In most of your Bibles, only two or three pages forward from the story of God creating life, and it's Genesis 6, 5 through 8. I want to read it for you. It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds in the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor in the Lord. If you study the numbers, about 1,600 years after God created man, not even six pages after it in the Bible, he decides that The world is so wickedly evil that I must destroy it and wipe it clean. Mathematicians, due to the extended life of people at this time and the large families, believe it or not, most mathematicians believe that the earth at the time was populated with almost the same population as it is now. That's a lot of people. They believe that it's possible that it would be almost the same number of people as it is today, which is also kind of striking and interesting for us, isn't it? And he decides that he's going to wipe this world clean. But unlike the story of the engineers where they were creating this plague and going to destroy the earth, I believe that this story, the story of Noah's Ark, as most of us know it, is actually a story of God's love. It's actually a story of of God's love, an indicator. And I know what you guys are going to think. What? Love? How on earth could God killing six billion people be about love? How could it be about love that he decides he's going to destroy this creation that he made? That doesn't make any sense. And you know what? I'm with you. I actually kind of understand what you're saying. Because when you start to read the Bible, sometimes it does get hard. In, in the New Testament, in 1 John 3, 8, I mean, excuse me, 1 John 4, 8, the second half of it, it says this statement, God is love. And I got to tell you that when I started to read the Old Testament, I began to get a little bit confused. I remember the first time that I read through the Old Testament, I began to question and say, is this the same God? The same one that I read about in the New Testament where it says God is love and Jesus and healing people and and bringing them faith and taking care of people. Is this really the same God? Because I read the Old Testament and I read stuff like like the flood. He decides to kill six billion people and only spare eight. I read about how he would slaughter whole areas of people who didn't follow him. I read about how he took and he sent plagues on Israelites' captors. And I was thinking, man, is this, is this the same God? And I have to tell you that when I started to read it for the first time, it really shook my faith to the core. It really made me start to question and wonder, you know, is this really the same God that's in the New Testament? And I remember that it, the one year I was reading and I, I just kept reading to the Old Testament and I got all the way to Jeremiah. And I remember that I was praying and asking God because I kept saying, God, man, it, just, it seems so strange. The stuff you say seems so different than how I imagine you would do it now. And I got to Jeremiah and I was reading and I hit Jeremiah 3.19. And this one changed everything for me. God is talking about the Israelites and how they, they messed everything up Man, they're an evil generation who had turn away from them and they just constantly turn their back on them. And he says this in Jeremiah 3.19. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I looked forward to you calling me Father and I wanted you never to turn from me. And right after that, it goes right back into, but you haven't and I must send this, and I'm going to send destruction, and I'm going to do this. But when I saw that one verse, I remember that it just changed everything and exploded that, that disconnect of Old Testament to New Testament because in one sentence, all of a sudden, when it came up, I realized God's heart. Amongst all this destruction and all this thing, just in one little verse, we see this window where God, even while he's punishing his children, you hear him say, but I thought about man, how great it would be if you'd turn back to me. And I thought about how much I wanted you to just call me Father. I thought about how I was going to give you this land, and I was going to take care of you, and we were going to be so close together. And I remember I read that verse, and I realized God's heart is the same in the Old Testament as the New Testament. How he had to deal with the wickedness and the sin was different, but his heart was the exact same. Inside that God who was even rough and gruff at sometimes who would destroy civilizations who were evil was the same heart. that He just longed to be their father. He longed for deep connection. When I read this story again with that context, the same verse that I read to you just a second ago, I'll have her put it back up on the screen so you can read it again. Now with this new insight in my mind when I read this, what happens is I read it slightly different. The Lord observed the extent of the human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he'd ever made them and put them on earth. But then, see, the second half of verse 6 jumps out to me. What does it say? It broke his heart. See, when I got that perspective of realizing that the same heart was in God in the Old Testament and New Testament, when I read verses like that, those tiny little Sentences that only three words just jump out right in my face. It broke his heart. And you realize the same heart is there that he didn't want to have to punish his kids. He didn't want to have to condemn them to destruction. But see, God is just, and he can't leave evil unpunished. And you see the same heart, and that's what began to make me think, this is actually a story of God's love about his love. I think the other half of it is this, is that unlike the terrible plague that the engineers were going to send to the world, God still sought to save the righteous. See, in the story, at the end of it, verse 8, he talks about how he's going to condemn everyone and how he's going to destroy the earth, but verse 8 says, but Noah found favor with the Lord. We see this over and over again in the Bible, that although he has to punish wickedness, he cannot turn his back on righteousness. And we see in the story of Noah, that although he's going to destroy the whole earth, Noah and his family, because they were following God, he couldn't just let them die with the rest of them. He made a way that they could be saved and they could continue to live because he can't turn his back on the righteous. We see it again later on in the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's this terribly wicked city and God says, I'm going to destroy it. But Abraham prays, and Lot and his family, because they were still righteous, God made a way in which they could be removed from it and not suffer the same destruction. We saw it when the Israelites came all the way out and got to the edge of the promised land, and they refused to go in and take it. And God said, the entire generation will die in the desert. But Caleb and Joshua, who had faith and believed, God said, you will survive and you will enter the promised land. Everyone else will die and you won't. We saw it when he sent the Israelites to destroy Jericho. And although they were going to destroy this entire city, Rahab the prostitute and her family, because they had helped the spies and because they were beginning to believe that there was a God, he saved them and did not let them be destroyed with the rest of the town. We saw it when Israel was going to be exiled, just like I talked about a couple weeks ago, although he left a remnant that stayed faithful to God. Over and over and over again, we see God's love amidst his judgment. And although he has to judge and he has to bring justice that sometimes is very, very harsh and very, very strong and sometimes we look at it and say, man, that's just too much for me. In the midst of it, we see God's love that he refuses to turn his back from those who love him. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It's actually the most quoted passage of the Bible, in the Bible. Does that make sense to you? The most quoted passage of the Bible in the Bible. That means that this verse is reused the most in the Bible of all of them. And it's a picture of who God is. And this is what it says in Exodus 34, 6-7. through seven. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. Now, let's pair that. Let's, let's jump from there. Let's jump to the New Testament, because like I'm saying, I'm saying that the, the Old Testament and the New Testament God is the same, and although sometimes it's hard to, to understand him, when we jump to the New Testament, it's the same God. And that verse that I had shared earlier, that um, 1 John 4, 8, let's read 4, 8, and let's read 9. And it says, God is love. And then it goes on to explain it in verse 9, saying, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Listen. Listen. God, it says in that, in that first one, I, I do not excuse the guilty. God cannot excuse and simply pardon the guilty because that would make him unjust. That would make him crooked. But he found a way to make you innocent again. See, God can't just excuse guilt. He can't just excuse guilt because then he wouldn't be good. But instead, God found a way to reinstate your innocence. You have a creator, and your creator loves you. You have a creator, and your creator loves you. It says that because of our sin, because of of us choosing to not follow God's direction for our lives... That basically, we racked up a debt of death on our life. And that someday when we die, we need to pay for that debt. And the way we pay for it is by going into what's known as eternal death. That's our default direction because we all sin and we all fall short. And God couldn't simply look at that and say, Oh no, it's all good, I'll just sweep it under the rug. Because then he wouldn't be just. He can't simply look past all of the failing, all of the sin, all of the evil... But instead, God said, I'm going to find a way to make you innocent again. And the end of that verse says that he sent his one and only son, who was God himself, to come to earth. And he lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross and died. And it says that what he did when he went to that cross is he took our debt and he carried it on his shoulders. So he didn't have any sin to carry to the cross. He didn't have any sin to take him there because the wages of sin is death, but he didn't have any. So he couldn't receive death as punishment because he had no sin. And the Bible says that what he did because he was God is he took and he says, I have no sin, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take all of your sin. All of your sin, every one of you who's in this room, everyone before us and everyone after us. And he said, I'm gonna take all that sin and I'm gonna carry it and I'm gonna pay for it with my death. And the Bible makes clear that he went to the cross, and when he died, his death was like writing paid over all of that debt that we had racked up in our lives. He resurrected from dead three days later, and he said that anyone who trusts and who accepts this gift that I freely give, that me sacrificing and changing places with you, basically, you were on death row, I said, I'll switch with you. Anyone who accepts that, they no longer have to die for pay for their sins, They start a relationship with me, and when they die, I'm going to ask them to come into everlasting life with me because that's where I want you to be. But you have to accept it. Just like if someone offered to switch spots with you if you're on death row, you can say, no, I don't want it. But if you would accept that free gift that God says, then I'll pay for your sins. I'll take care of all those mistakes you made. Just start living and believing in me then that I covered those sins. Make me the Lord of your life. Follow me. Let me give some, some input into your life as you step forward. And that when you die, you can begin a eternal life. But, you know, even more than that, God's gift is that we begin eternal life today. You no longer have to live in those trenches of sin, in those trenches of sadness and regret. That God says, I'm going to forgive and wipe away all that past. I have such a brighter future for you from here on out. You see, our life wasn't a mistake. Our life didn't just come to happen by chance. Our life wasn't created by a big bang, it was created by a big God. And it's not an accident that you're here, it's not an accident that you are who you are, it's not an accident that you're sitting in the service right now, it's all planned out. It's all because a creator made this, a creator made you. And that creator loves you. And he wants to know you personally. What I want to do is offer this this morning, and I don't know where everyone's at, but I want to give you this. Close your eyes for a second, and I just want to offer this out there. If there's someone here, if there's someone here who says, you know what, I think you're right, there's a creator. I believe that it's God, and I want to know him, but you say, I don't have a relationship with him right now. Or maybe I did in the past, but I have been so far away from him, I can tell you I don't have a relationship with him right now. I need to reestablish, or I need to establish for the first time that relationship with that creator that you're talking about. I need Jesus in my life to change me, to bring about something different. I'm stuck in my same old ruts of sin, and I want something different. I believe that there's a creator who made me and loves me. If that's you this morning, no one's looking around, real quick, 3, 2, 1. I want you to throw your hand above your head so God can see it, so I can see it. I want to pray for you. Go ahead, raise up your hand at that. I see you right in the front here, ma'am. I see you in the middle there, ma'am. I see you in the back, ma'am. I see you back there, ma'am. I see you right here in the front, sir. I see you back there. I see you. Anyone else today who say, that's me. I need to get this ironed out. I need to start this up. I see you. I want us all to join together right now. You guys keep your eyes closed. Let's pray together right now. There's six or seven people who raised their hands this morning who want to accept Jesus. And let's pray with them, believing that God's going to do something awesome. Pray with me. Follow after me. Lord Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying in my place. Please come into my life. I make you my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. For you guys who raised your hands today, we believe what you just did is what we call getting saved. I know that's an old school term, but I think it's really, really applicable is this, that your life was headed in one direction, but God said, I want to change it and point it in a new one, and today that's the change that happened in your life. Today, you've given your life to Jesus, and you've committed to that. What I'd love for you guys to do, you guys who did that, go back to guest services, grab a Bible before you leave, read some of God's Word, tell somebody who you know is a friend, here. tell them, man, I raised my hand today, I want to start a relationship with Jesus. The rest of you, I want to finish this with this, okay? I hope you really enjoyed this, this message series, but the rest of you say, I know Jesus. Or maybe you're still questioning. Don't live your life as if it was by chance. We have a creator, And if he's given you breath today, it's because he has a plan for you. Don't waste your life in mediocrity. Don't waste your life thinking that it's simply by chance that you're here, but begin to walk every day knowing that if this morning God let you breathe, it's because he has something for you whether it's for you or maybe you have something to give to someone else. Maybe God wants to use you today, but refuse to live a life where each day you think it's just by chance because we know as Christians, we know as believers that we have a creator and our creator loves us and we refuse to live a life that's simply by chance. God bless you this week. Go out there, change the world. Come back next week as we start guardrails.